skeptical. I, I have this notion, and maybe it's not true at all, but I have this notion that I could have lived very versions of my life with very different results, obviously, you know, what you do every day and who you meet and all of these kinds of things, but maybe with not so different results in terms of how happy, how happy am I, how satisfied am I. This is Before It's Too Late. I'm your host, Christian Susan. Let's learn together what matters most in life. In today's episode, we are learning from Harvard Business School professor for strategy and most successful after-hours podcast host, Felix Oberholzer G, that happiness is possible in many different versions. He's sharing with us that for the longest time in his life, he thought he wanted to be a carpenter. But when life catapulted him into the elite academic world, he remembers thinking, it was so far from what I had imagined for myself. Never I thought that I could potentially be good at this. I was very touched by this statement, especially because of Felix's conclusion he's drawing from it. I have this notion, he says, that I could have lived various versions of my life with very different results, but with not so different results of how happy I am. Also, we are learning from him about his love for spontaneous human interactions in the streets, about why it is important to be in an environment where everybody keeps trying their best again and again, and about why Felix has no aspiration to think about legacy. Please join me in this wonderful, insightful conversation. Felix, hello. Welcome to Before It's Too Late. Thank you, Christian. I'm very excited to be here. I am totally proud to have you as my guest today, Felix. I remember about a year ago, we sat over a cup of coffee in Manhattan, chatting as we always did. And now, almost a year later, we are meeting remotely to record this podcast. So it's quite fascinating yes. how much uh, the world has changed in the meantime. <laughs> right. And, <laughs> and having coffee with you will be so much better than meeting remotely, but we, you know, we do the best we can. Uh, yeah, exactly. We did. And I'm sure we will have a coffee soon again. I'm confident. Good, good. Um, Always loved your optimism. <laughs> <laughs> Felix, you are the Andreas Andresen Professor of Business Administration in the Strategy Unit at Harvard Business School. It's and quite a I'm... mouthful, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's a fact, isn't it? <laughs> it is, yes. <laughs> and I know from all um, our conversations and also um, from our common board work at the Swiss media company Ringier, how much you love strategy and especially competitive strategies. So I'm really curious what happened to all those strategies you were teaching during the last yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah so uh there well let's say there's a lot of movement there's a lot of there's a lot of rethinking strategic decisions that that people have made and i think one of the really interesting things about the current situation is when you're when you're in steady state if the if the world looks like the world looks most of the time you make all of these optimizing decisions 
right? And, and in particular, think about supply chains, think about location decisions. And if the world doesn't change radically, you can get the, the very best companies I work with. They get very, very close to getting it exactly right. And then, of course, now in this completely different situation, all of a sudden, some of the things that seemed optimal, that seemed like, yeah, that's exactly how you should think about supply chains and so on. You know, you wonder a little bit, shouldn't you have more slack? Shouldn't you be more distributed over a larger number of countries? And maybe the maybe one of the really interesting things that we will see over the long term where you could really convince me either way. One view is we're just going to go back because the pressure to optimize once the world is back to normal is going to be just like, you know, the pressure we used to face and people go back and they will make those same decisions again. It's not going to be the case that hospitals will always have a little extra capacity because they know that if the next pandemic comes around, they will need that extra capacity or maybe we will have learned something really fundamental and something really different. I, if, you, if you press me, I would say it's more likely that we go back to the way, the way we thought about the world before. I think we overestimate the, the degree to which this really excruciating experience has, has changed the world fundamentally. Mm, that's interesting. And could be totally wrong, <laughs> which is, <laughs> you know, a prediction that can't be wrong is not a very valuable prediction. <laughs> but I would be really curious, uh, why is that, that you think we will be more or less staying with the same strategy and same approaches? I think it's because what used to bring about profitability, what used to bring about value for customers, value for employees, value for suppliers, these parameters haven't haven't really changed all that much. Of course, uh, the pandemic has acted as a as an accelerator for some of these trends. You know, you see, we were on a trend to do more shopping online, and that has accelerated. We were on a trend to enjoy more work flexibility, where people didn't have to sit in their office Uh, five days a week, nine hours a day. And we accelerated this trend as a result of the pandemic. But I don't, I, I don't really see changes that are completely new, completely, completely different. In the beginning, you know, you sit around in your pajamas and you think, oh my God, this is amazing. I'm never going to go back to the office. And then <laughs> one year in, you think, ah, it was sort of nice to, you know, walk over to the next office and chat with my colleagues. And you're, you're missing, you're missing the interaction. And so in many ways, it's the pandemic is as much a reminder of all the things we enjoyed and all the things we got really right, as it is a sign of the radical changes that we will observe over time. I like that. Felix, on a more personal level, I know how much you love teaching, how you love the energy in the classroom, the engagement of the students. What have you learned about yourself in the past year, given the absence of all that? I mean, some of it is, is that you're desperately trying to recreate some of the some of the closeness, some of the personal relationships. I give you I give you one example. We were we were thinking about many of our MBA students have only very limited opportunities now to be in the classroom. And so we were thinking about things that we could do for them that feel really special. 
and we've created small groups. So I'm meeting every couple of weeks with uh, with about seven, eight students uh, to just talk about personal personal things like in our, person. Our, are you are you meeting? Uh, no, person? it's all we can't meet in person because it's too risky. But we, you know, we're trying to recreate a little bit like our coffee shop. We're trying to recreate closeness. We talk about really personal topics about things that move us, things that are on our minds, a little bit as if we could get together in person. And it's not perfect. It's not, it's not exactly a, a substitute, but it's frankly something that, you know, faculty being busy, students being even busier than faculty, something that is very unlikely to happen in a, in a regular year at, at this frequency. And so we've we found ways to make up a little bit for the lack in contact, the lack in closeness, the, the sort of the joy that comes from thinking about business and thinking about the world and teaching each other new insights, new ways of both experiencing business issues, but also thinking about potential solutions. Okay. And what have you learned about yourself then? I mean, I have to tell you, this was, I, w I was mostly in New York in the early days of the pandemic, and it was, it was so scary. I mean, one, one thing that I will never, ever forget is the city was so quiet. You know, usually there's always this noise somewhere, and it was just, It was dead quiet, except there were ambulances 24/7, and so it really it was it was it was an experience that I will that I will never quite forget. And so then, of course, I was super careful about seeing people. And the first time when we had guests over again, it was it was amazing. I mean, mm -hmm. it was just the joy of seeing someone, laughing with other people. I, I knew a little bit about that that's something that's important to me being being social being with other people but but the, but the joy that that these moments created was really quite even even much bigger than than I had than I had anticipated and so I think one of the things that that I learned about myself is these these really personal conversations but also getting together in person sitting across a table That is something that is much more important. I realize now is much more important to me than than I would have than I would have anticipated. I've also noticed how the days feel. You know, in a way, what I'm doing every day is not so different from what I did every day before, minus the classroom presence, of course. But I'm mostly sitting at my laptop and I'm doing the research that I'm doing. I'm working with co-authors. My co-authors tend to be scattered around different places anyway so most of the interaction is online but there's now a little bit like a monotony that i actually find quite difficult to deal with it feels like oh my god here i am it's like another day and i had my second cup of coffee and now i'm answering my emails and and i never really you know the little things seem to seem to create a kind of variety that I never really paid much attention to. But that's really a big part of, I guess, both physical well-being and, and then emotional well-being also. It reminds me a little bit. Hitachi has an interesting and maybe a little bit a scary experiment where they ask people at the end of their day 
to record how happy they were with that particular workday. And they're wearing these sensors around their necks so that the company can geolocate how much people move, who they speak with, all of these kinds of things. And the idea is, you know, can you create a work environment that will feel better to people? Uh, it's integrated, say, with scheduling software. So if we know if you have many meetings, that actually is not good for you. You'll be in a bad mood. The scheduling software has the potential to warn you if you schedule too many meetings. And one of the interesting interesting things about the research that they do or the, or the results that they have is that moving just a little bit so this is not even really a walk to the next two you know two offices over this is just moving a little bit every now and then seems to have like a very big impact on on well-being and and just sitting in your chair staring at your laptop basically the way I live right now uh, I think is not great for me and I don't seem to be an exception in this respect Oh, very much not. That is very relatable, what you just said about the monotony. And uh, I think that uh, kicks in for each of us, given that we are almost a year now in that situation. But maybe we will, over time, still have the opportunity to, to create meaning from, from this time, where we are forced to be distancing ourselves. Uh, create things or thoughts or actions we wouldn't have created had we not been in that situation. One of my resolutions that I was thinking about, so I, I like to I like to read. In particular, I think it's a little bit a coincidence, but but many of the authors I really love, they they tend to live on the east coast of the United States, so it wouldn't be it wouldn't be totally impossible to get to know these authors that I really love. I love their writing. I love the way they put together stories. Uh, it wouldn't be completely impossible to meet them in person, but I've never really done so. Maybe sometimes I reached out and, you know, I send an email to someone saying, oh, boy, like your book was really fantastic. I loved it, but nothing really more. And I've been thinking maybe that's something I should do. Like if, if person, you know, if you realize personal interactions are so important to you, having at least now, a plan to to do that much more and much more systematically. I think could be could be something yeah. that I that I hope I can take away from this from this difficult period. That sounds amazing. And also, your phenomenal podcast is something that is highly recommendable. I think you are sharing fantastic insights every week and you've started the fourth season with that right now, haven't you? I know. I know. Quite quite surprisingly. You know, our expectations were, we were, it was a, it was a funny thing, actually. We had both very low expectations and we're very nervous at one at the same time, which I know makes no sense. But, but when we started out, the idea, I think as a, as a researcher in particular, you get used to this ethos where you have to be a thousand percent sure before you say anything. And in a way, that's what we, you know, expect from our scientists. You don't want the scientist to, you know, make some proclamation if, in fact, she is not, she or he's not super certain that, that what, they, what they found is really right. And so that almost becomes a habit. And offering sort of views or, or a particular take on a difficult situation where you haven't done research feels okay, of course, in personal interactions, but to be public about them is, was, the idea was quite nerve-wracking. 
And I have known my, my podcast partners, uh, Young Me and Me, here for a long time. And we feel completely comfortable doing this in person. And the podcast is modeled after personal conversations that we have. But then the idea that, you know, more than five people would listen to it was just like, was so frightening. And, and <laughs> you know, <laughs> imagine. It's, it, and, and it just, I think it comes from expectations that you have. This is a, this is, it's a strange thing having to do with the, you, on the one hand, you always represent, of course, yourself, but on the other hand, you present, you represent your profession and you represent the Harvard brand that one at the same time. And I think in a way that is, you know, gives you a bigger platform that more people will, more people will listen. But it also comes with some responsibility. I think you don't, I think we all are very cautious about using the platform in ways that don't feel right. So we want to make sure that people understand, you know, I'm telling you something that I know from my research and I'm not 100% sure, but I'm, I'm fairly sure that I'm right about the particular take. And that's very different from, I don't know, if you and I had a conversation now about how do you think about GameStop and the fact that these small investors drive up the share price of a company that is probably not all that valuable intrinsically. That Those two things feel, felt very different. And, and bridging that gap actually was not so, was quite, was quite difficult. I mean, you always have the editing process, so you can, you can take <laughs> out things if you're totally wrong. But, but I now find being more spontaneous, offering insights and, you know, just a way of thinking about things, even if you can't be a thousand percent sure and haven't done like years of research that this is the right way to think about a particular issue. Is actually quite okay, and it's maybe sometimes sometimes more helpful than the super polished research that we tend to produce. Oh yeah, that's very understandable, of course. And this is exactly why, Felix, I'm hoping that you are sharing more personal things here on my podcast, <laughs> <laughs> which is which is actually really about how. You know, this podcast is a reflection about how to create more fulfilling and meaningful life before it's too late, uh, whilst we still can, because co the COVID crisis, even though you think humanity won't change overall <laughs> after the crisis, however, I think it's a timely reminder that life can be over in a blink of an eye. Yeah. And in that context, I would love if you told us, Felix, a little bit more maybe about a pivotal moment from your life's journey. You are with Harvard Business School for 17 years now. Well, maybe it's a long time. <laughs> it's a long time, exactly. Maybe it's also a pivotal moment that happened before. I don't know. But I would be really interested in learning about such a moment after which you started to live a more meaningful life it's a super interesting question and one that i that i think about every now and then and it's you know my i think my general feeling is that fulfillment and happiness is sort of at least i have a sense that it's that it's possible in many different versions of the life that i could have led so i give you i give you one example Growing up, I, I loved always working with wood. 
And for the longest time, I thought I wanted to be a carpenter. No one in my family had gone to university or even or even a gymnasium. So I didn't really have, you know, these role models around me, people like if you had asked me that, do you want to have an academic career? I, I would have laughed you out of the room. I would. I mean, <laughs> it's also I wouldn't really have known, like, what does this even mean to have an academic career? And it was definitely not close, not, you know, sort of like within the set of reasonable aspirations that I that I think I could have had. And so I was really thinking seriously about this, uh, about doing an apprenticeship as a carpenter and then, you know, go into the business. And and even today, even though I understand, you know, in so many ways, like my life would be so different if I had chosen that path. If you ask me, would you be similarly happy if you had chosen that path? I think I have a very strong intuition that the answer is yes. That that somehow, I mean, I made I made really big decisions like moving from Europe to America, deciding to be to trying to be an academic. That was like such a scary moment. I, well, I'm happy to talk about that a yes. little more. But but I'm not I'm not told for the for the question about you know before it's too late. Like do you you have to make a particular set of decisions and if you don't make them your sort of life satisfaction or happiness will be totally different i'm skeptical i i have this notion and maybe it's not true at all but i have this notion that i could have lived very versions of my life with very different results obviously you know what you do every day and who you meet and all of these kinds of things but maybe with not so different results in terms of how happy, how happy am I, how satisfied am I. What an amazing, profound reflection, Felix. I love that because it tells a lot about your inner relationship uh, with yourself, which is steady and stable and unshakable. Tell me about uh, the scary moment you were mentioning. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So this was... I mean, it's one interesting difference between between Europe and the United States in that in the United States, if you go through a PhD program, the goal of the PhD program is to be an academic somewhere. And say, if you don't get an academic position, but you get, even if you get a research position, say, with the Federal Reserve, it's not quite seen as a success. So, so the, the idea is really to become a faculty member at some, at some university. And in Europe, as you know, that's much less the case. I think in my PhD program, probably 80, 90% of the people came from industry careers and they went back to their industry careers after they got the, their PhD. And that was basically the path that I was on. I thought, oh, you know, it's, it's good career-wise to have to have a PhD like it's interesting to do but I didn't really think about you know I could be I could be a professor somewhere and in the European system it's also because the number of faculty positions doesn't grow very quickly because it's mostly public universities it's in in some ways you literally have to wait for someone to retire before you can hope to get one of these coveted positions and so in my case, we had a visitor from, from the United States in my very last year of my PhD program. And he said to me at one point in time, why don't you come 
to, this was the University of Pennsylvania, the Wharton School. Why don't you come to the Wharton School uh, just to see what it's like and, you know, teach for a semester? And, uh, and I thought, I, I never really thought about moving to the United States and I hadn't really thought about being having an academic career, but I thought, well, that's a, like a nice adventure uh, to have. <laughs> so I went. And then what you see is just the pool of talent in in this country and and of course a pool that is drawn basically from every corner of the world just how smart these people are and how amazingly well trained in comparison to my level of training that you think oh my god i could never ever ever succeed here it's really that was like so because you get you get I think we all get used to some versions of success. You know, you're, I don't know, smart in high school or you're good at your job. But then being catapulted in this environment where we're just like everybody around me was like, I, I was in awe, like 24-7, just what people did, what they knew, like the breadth of their, of their education, like really just totally amazing. And... And it was almost like one of these, I don't know, I, I, I still find it actually quite amazing that, that they made me an offer to join the university as an assistant professor at the end of my visit. Mm. And I said no, in part, because I didn't really think this was like something I should be doing <laughs> and, and, or as something that I could potentially be good at. And also because it, it was so just it was just so far from what I had imagined for myself. So I went back to Europe actually. I, I still had some grant money left from, from a research project. And you know, they kept writing and they kept insisting and so I tried I moved I forget now, maybe a year or two years two years later to, to try this career. But it was sort of against all expectations and with with Maybe this is one of the most, one of the moments I will never forget because you feel so like fish out of water. Like this is not, like, you know how sometimes you do things, I don't know, you, I love cooking. Like sometimes I, I cook a new dish and I think, oh my God, I'm, I'm just meant to do this. Like I'm really good at this and, and the result is amazing. I was pretty much the opposite. I was not meant to do this. And I had no idea whether I could be, I could be successful or not. Yeah, but it was just in your head. This is what happens if somebody sees a potential in you that you don't see for yourself. What was it that you overcame finally to then start this outstanding academic career? I mean, one of, it, one of the advantages I think that I then had being in the United States is just The intensity of these careers is is just mind-blowing. You know, you're basically pretty much early in your career, you don't really have a life outside your career. It's like I, I remember I would come back, you know, shortly before midnight because <laughs> nothing ever good, nothing good happens after after midnight in research. But But it was just like being around a group of people who were so engaged because they were all convinced that this is what they were meant to do. And being in that group is actually is really helpful because I do think you remember one of Gladwell's ideas that 
that excellence comes a little from talent and mostly comes from repetition. Mm-hmm. I think that is so true. Like we, we th- and, I, and I thought about talent, I think, I don't think quite the right way. So some of it, maybe you have to have a little bit of talent, but then so much of it just has to do with how much do you really try? I see this now, I'm, I'm fairly successful as a, as a teacher but every time, so there are cases that I must have taught, I don't know, hundreds of times. Like, and, and you know, at Harvard Business School, each, each session is basically the discussion of a case. And so some of, some of my favorite co- cases I've taught so often. There is rarely an instance when I walk out where I think, no, actually, I could have, I could have done this better. Like, there was, like, some opportunity for improvement and then you build on that and you and you get better and I think that's true in research that's true in teaching that's true in so many ways so one of the advantages that I probably didn't see was just being in an environment where trying again and again and again and again is that that turned out to be a huge advantage I give you one scary statistic much of your promotion chances depend on your ability to publish in what are considered the best uh, scientific journals of your of your profession, of your profession of that particular specialty, and in my in my case, the rejection rates of papers are in 99 percent. So there's just you know it's it's very few papers make it through this very narrow gate, but if you're in, in an environment where everybody keeps trying despite the fact that it's so hard to do, that I think has a, has a, has a, profound, has a profound influence. I think this is why where you grow up, who you spend time with, what's the environment, do you have access to mentors, yes, no, all of these things are so important because if you had to recreate, I think some, maybe some really exceptional people can recreate all of this on their own, but I definitely couldn't, and and so the the environment that you're in, I think, is a big is one of the big advantages that I have. That's an amazing advice. I think you can give to especially young people who are starting their careers that um, persistence and perseverance is key. Felix, here's my last question for you. What do you want to leave behind besides money? Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Do I have to be sure about the money? (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, maybe you want to leave behind a handcrafted piece of wood or a great dish as a chef or... What do you think your legacy will be? So I'm around... I'm around people often where this is a really this is a really big question, right? So what's your, you know, what will people remember? What is the book that people will read 20, 50 years from now? And I try to, I don't matter that much. I can think I can have a positive impact on people's lives in interactions right now. You know, when I teach, when I try to be a mentor, when even like little things, like one of the things that I always loved 
in cities, living in cities, which I, I think why I'm so attracted to cities, is these, these spontaneous interactions. Like do this, like walk out on any morning and, and smile at the first person you see. And almost always, like the person will smile back. And, right. and I think I can, I do believe that I have both an obligation, but also an amazing opportunity to make life better sort of in the here and now for, you know, sometimes some, sometimes former students write back and they have really nice things to say about these interactions. But I don't think, I, I don't have the aspiration and I don't think I want to make many decisions in my life right now thinking about what will people remember, what's going to be left. I think it's all very it's all very fleeting. It's that's one of the things I think that that is difficult for many people to accept that in the in the big scheme of things we're just not that important. No no very few people are really amazingly important. Nelson Mandela was amazingly important, but no one no one is like Nelson Mandela or very very few people are. And I don't, I try, I try to live my life more in the here and now, thinking about, you know, like when my day starts, like I often think about, like, what are opportunities today to make the day a better day for someone else I, I'm going to have an interaction with. I have, I have two meetings uh, actually today where we decide to to hire to hire new faculty in in our in our group and i'm thinking about you know how can we get really amazing interesting people but also for everyone who's already in the group are there opportunities that i have to make this decision and to make this conversation about who to make an offer to a, a, a good a good experience so these things really matter to me but then once i'm gone once i'm dead if no one remembers me I'm sort of okay with that. I don't. I, that's not something that that I worry that I worry very much about. I love these insights and these thoughts, Felix. They are so wise and so modest, but at the same time they are huge. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on what matters to you in your life. You're very welcome. I really enjoyed this profound conversation, and I hope you did too. For more episodes of Before It's Too Late, make sure to subscribe. If this episode spoke to you, consider sharing it with a friend or loved one you think might benefit from it. Thank you for listening.